0: You're listening to a Sovereign Hope Church podcast with pastor and teaching elder, Adam Vinson. All right, good morning. If you have your Bibles, you can open up to Exodus chapter 28 is where we'll be today, Exodus chapter 28. If you were here last week, you'll remember that we talked about the presence of God, uh, particularly in the form of the tabernacle. So last week we were talking about God taking steps to put us back into position of being with him. The idea of God's presence being so important for us as his creation. We said that God's mission is to be with his people, but because he's holy and his people are sinful, the only way to restore his presence in the life of his people is through a meeting place where both justice and mercy can be found together. And so we looked at that specifically through the, the Ark of the Covenant, that God was creating opportunity for his people to come back home to be with Him. The idea of His presence and His dwelling being with man once again. But for it to happen, it was going to be at a place where both mercy and justice were going to take place. At the Ark of the Covenant, where sacrifice and blood was going to have to be shed in order for God to dwell with sinful, sinful people. We talked about how uh, it points us back to Eden, where we were originally created to be with God. We talked about how the tabernacle was God making steps now to restore that fellowship. We saw it where Christ is the ultimate fulfillment of the tabernacle, that God does come to dwell with us in human form. We talked about the church now being uh, God's presence here on the earth, that Christ indwells us as we seek to be a light to the world around us. And then we talked about the hope of glory that Christ is coming and that when he does, we will be with him forever, that God's dwelling place will be once again with man. Um, That brings us now to Exodus chapter 28. We're actually gonna look at four chapters today. So we're gonna gonna cover a lot of content quickly, give you the chance to go back and read some of those chapters this week, maybe on your own to dive a little bit more in depth to it. But I wanna draw your attention to Exodus chapter 28, verse one, it says, Then bring near to you Aaron, your brother, and his sons with him from among the people of Israel to serve me as priests, Aaron and Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, Eleazar and Ithamar, and you shall make holy garments for Aaron, your brother, for glory and for beauty. You shall speak to all the skillful men whom I have filled with a spirit of skill that they make Aaron's garments to consecrate him for my priesthood. These are the garments that they shall make. A breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat of checkerwork, a turban, and a sash. They shall make a holy they shall make holy garments for Aaron your brother and his sons to serve me as priests. They shall receive gold, blue, and purple and scarlet yarns, and fine twined linen. Our summary sentence for today. If the tabernacle if the tabernacle helps us understand our way home, then the priesthood is our help for getting home because it is through the priesthood that God provides representation at his mercy seat, a representation met best by Jesus. For our kids, Jesus is our priest who makes it possible for us to connect with God. We talked last week about the tabernacle being our way home, how we come back to dwelling with God and enjoying his presence, But it leaves us with the question of how do we actually get into that presence? Because everything we saw last week was this picture of separation that only certain people were going to be able to come closer and closer to God uh, because of our sin. There's a popular uh, country song out there right now, and I, I use the term country loosely because it's sung by a guy named Jelly Roll, which doesn't communicate what I grew up knowing is country music, right? But the song is, is entitled, God, I Need a Favor. And it's about basically this guy who recognizes he only comes to God when he needs something. And he describes like his sinful lifestyle that he, he indulges in. But when he needs something, he still feels compelled to come to God. For a favor. The tabernacle communicates the exact opposite, right? Like the song is based on the premise that we can live how we want to live and still come running to God for favors whenever we find ourselves in times of need. The tabernacle says your sin keeps you separated from God, right? And it also communicates to us that we need far more than a favor to fix the problem, right? That we need a mediator. We need an advocate. We need a savior. We need a priest, We need somebody who can take us into the holy presence of God so that we're not killed for it. Um, And that's what the priesthood gives us. The tabernacle laid the groundwork last week for us. We want to come home. We want to be with God. But it shows us the way home, but doesn't get us there. It's the priesthood that helps get us all the way there. The representation that we need at that mercy seat. And what we're gonna see today, it's a representation that's best met by Jesus. Now, again, why are these chapters important? Because we don't have a tabernacle anymore and we don't have priests, right? The importance of these chapters is seen in that it gives us crucial context for what we read and understand about Christ in the New Testament. We talked about last week, it helps us worship Christ better if we understand how Christ fulfills these things in the Old Testament. I don't know if it works this way for you, but uh, with you and your spouse, but oftentimes I'll find myself sitting down with Lauren at night, and if we're going to watch uh, TV together, she's usually already halfway through a TV show or a movie, right? And so I'll sit down, and there's one of two choices. I can either engage with what we're doing, which is going to require me to ask some questions to kind of get caught up, or I might assess and just say, you know what, I don't think I even care about this TV show or movie. And so I might just sit with her, enjoy her presence, but not really try to engage with the story. Now. If it's a Hallmark Christmas movie, I don't really have to ask any questions. I can figure out the plot in like two seconds, right? It's just a matter of figuring out who thinks they're in love with who right now and who are they ultimately going to end up with by the end of it, right? There's other more complex storylines that sometimes I really have to dig into and really ask a lot of questions. I remember the first time Lauren sat down to watch uh, the popular TV show, This Is Us, She's halfway through it. She's already like immersed emotionally in the storyline. And I start asking some basic questions and I'm so confused by her answers because at the time I don't realize there's two different timelines going on and so many complex characters. I'm just completely confused by the whole thing, right? If, If we come to the New Testament and we just start reading like the book of Hebrews, trying to figure out why Christ is so important and all the references are back to these Old Testament ways of life, we look at it and we go, I'm really confused. I don't really understand why this is such a big deal. If we understand the backstory, if we understand the full movie that's being played, it gives immense deep meaning to who Jesus is. Just like a good story in a TV show where it gets to the climax and you're like, man, this is great storytelling. That's what we get in the New Testament. But we don't reach that climax, that conclusion of this is a great story without understanding the backstory and the full context for it. That's what these chapters give us in Exodus chapter 28 through 31. Last week, we saw the instructions for building the temple where God's going to dwell with man. This week, we're seeing instructions for how to consecrate the people who are going to lead mankind to God's dwelling. And there's instructions given both to who we might classify as the holy individuals and the ordinary individuals. Now, this isn't where we're going to spend our time, but I think it's worth noting. There's instructions given about these holy priests, right? Given for the clothing they're gonna wear, the consecration process they're gonna have to go through, sacrifices that they have to make, how to make them ready for their role. But there's also instructions given to what we might would call the ordinary, just the average individual, the, the craftsman that's going to build the tabernacle, that's going to construct the clothing for the priest. These guys end up being just as important as the priests. Right? Like God gives these people instructions as well. We find this more specifically in chapter 31, and we're not going to take time to look at it right now. Um, But here, even in in chapter 28, we're told that Aaron and Aaron's sons are going to be super important. But then there's also these skillful individuals who have been filled with a spirit of skill. They have a responsibility for making these things just as God has commanded them to be made. It's, a, it's, a, it's, a, it's worth noting here that the Spirit fills us to do tasks that are not always considered sensational in the eyes of others. These common, ordinary people are given the Spirit of God to accomplish ordinary tasks that end up being used in extraordinary ways. They're given ability and intelligence and knowledge and wisdom and skill. It's worth noting that the Spirit doesn't just work and move inside of us to do miraculous things. The Spirit works and moves inside of us on a weekly basis to do the ordinary things that God calls us to in extraordinary ways for his glory and for his honor. So all of us are gonna leave today and we're gonna go do things this week. And for the most part, it's gonna be common, ordinary things. But because the Holy Spirit lives inside of us, those things can be used in extraordinary ways for his glory and for his honor. One commentator said that God can be known through the preaching and the plumbing that takes place this week, right? Sometimes we think that, hey, the ministers, the elders, the deacons, the small group leaders, those are the ones that drive the kingdom and drive the growth within the church. And I'm here to tell you, like God calls every single individual in our church to play a massive role in the expansion of his kingdom. I love right now that within our church, it's not just elders and deacons that are doing the discipleship of new believers in our church, right? Like it's anybody and everybody God can equip through his spirit to grow his kingdom. And he does that with with craftsmen here, right here. He says, hey, I'm going to need some individuals who are going to do some mighty work to build the tabernacle and to construct the clothing of the priests. Now let's take a quick look at the priesthood overall, and then we're going to jump into the chapters to kind of see it more in detail. Understanding the priesthood. Priests will need to be set apart because they are meant to embody the tabernacle. What you'll see if you take the time to read through all these chapters, and we've already started to see a glimpse of it just reading the first five verses of chapter 28, is that the priest is almost like a walking version of the tabernacle. He's gonna be clothed in the same type of stones and the same type of colors that you would find adorning the tabernacle walls and the the curtains and the structure of of this place, right? He's the embodiment of the tabernacle. He is meant to be the representation of all that the tabernacle is trying to communicate. His clothing is a breast piece, an ephod, a robe, a coat, a turban, and a sash, And it's interesting that the clothing is talked about before the consecration of the individuals, right? We're going to find that the individuals who wear these clothings are imperfect people, which is why they have to go through this consecration process, which involves washings and sacrifices and anointings to try to outwardly give them to be a picture of the ideal individual who would function in this role, because they don't live out the idealness of it, right? Right? Aaron, his sons, and others that would fill the priesthood, they're less than perfect. And so God starts with the picture of what they're really supposed to be and what he is going to choose to see when they stand in this role. It's important to note that, right? We've already talked about uh, before, Romans 3.25 talks about how God in his divine forbearance overlooked the sinful conditions of man in the past holding out any judgment until Christ came on the cross. So people are functioning in these roles of prophet and priest and king, and they do it imperfectly, right? David, who's considered to be a man after God's own heart, he's a king imperfectly, right? He doesn't do everything that God desires for him to do correctly. But God chooses to see the work of Christ... Backwards, knowing that Christ is coming, he chooses to see certain individuals this way as though they are covered in the work of Christ already. And that's what he chooses to do with the priests. Now, give you a quick picture that uh, an artist's rendition of what the, the priestly clothing would look like. Some of these articles that we've already read about, you can see displayed here. right? and we'll talk more specifically about what they are and what they do. But the consecration comes after the clothing. Ah, There's a washing that takes place. There's an anointing with oil. There's a personal sacrifice that has to be offered. It's only after all those things take place that the priests are then able to enjoy a meal with God, which is depicting the fact that he has accepted the process, right? The process that he established, he accepts and allows them to enter into this type of relationship where they're gonna be advocates for his people, all right? Let's jump in and look at, number one, find support from a better priest. We're going to see what the priests were supposed to do, and then we're going to see the flip side of how Christ does it better, okay? What were the priests supposed to do, and then how does Christ do it better? Now, there's a lot of cool things that we're looking at here in the Old Testament. Like, I was was thinking, like, it would be neat for somebody. I think, I'm sure people have. I just don't know where they are, but to, to have like a replica of the tabernacle that you could, you could physically kind of walk through and observe. Like Ken Ham needs to jump on that and get that part of his ark encounter. Hey, we got the tabernacle over here. You can spend some time over there too, right? Because it would be really neat to walk through that and kind of see this is what the, the priest would have experienced, right? To think about like just the, the process of them going through all of these rituals and ceremonies, like pretty neat, Right? It's also interesting to think that if we could talk to them, they would talk about our situation being far better, right? Like we can long to like see back and see what these things would have been like, but Moses and Aaron, they would have all said, what you have today is far better right? Like the curtain has been torn down. You don't offer sacrifices. You understand Jesus in ways that we didn't. Like your situation is far better than any cool factor that we can come up with for the tabernacle and the priesthood. Number one, find support for a better priest. In Exodus chapter 28, verse 12, look what it says. On this ephod, this uh, like apron type thing with the jewels on it that you see here, on that, verse 12, it says, You shall set the two stones on the shoulder pieces of the ephod as stones of remembrance for the sons of Israel. And Aaron shall bear their names before the Lord on his two shoulders for remembrance. These these stones would have had the, the names of the tribes of Israel embedded on them, and they were to depict Aaron carrying the people on his shoulders into the presence of God. You flip down to verse 29. It says, So Aaron shall bear the names of the sons of Israel in the breastplate of judgment on his heart when he goes into the holy place to bring them to regular remembrance before the Lord. So in addition to the stones that you can see on this priest's shoulders, you also have uh, the individualized stones on his chest, which would have bore the names of the, the tribes of Israel. What's the What's the reason for this? What's the picture for this? Well, the the Aaronic priesthood was called to take the people of God into his presence symbolically by name. The priest is bearing the names of Israel before the Lord on his shoulders and his heart, right? The burden of their sin, the, the cares and the concerns, the the heartfelt needs, he's bringing those into God as he comes into the holy place and into the holy of holies once a year. That's the picture that's given to us. He's the mediator, he's the priest. The people of Israel can't come in there, right? There's separation that's been created. Their sinfulness would keep them out. But God has made a way for them to be in the presence of God symbolically. And Aaron and his, his descendants are called to do this. They're called to support Israel in this way. What we find though is that Jesus brings us into the presence of God by removing the veil of separation. He does it better, right? He brings support to us in a much better way because he actually brings us to God. Hebrews chapter 10. And I've said it before, I would encourage you to take time to read through Hebrews as we continue our study through Exodus because so much parallels what the author of Hebrews writes. Hebrews chapter 10, verse 19. Therefore, brothers, since we have confidence to enter the holy places by the blood of Jesus. See, you don't don't get why that matters and why that's a big deal if you don't understand that you couldn't go into the holy places, right? Like in the Old Testament, you couldn't enter into God's presence that way. But we have confidence to enter this section by the new and living way that he opened for us through the curtain, that is through his flesh. And since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near with a true heart in full assurance of faith with our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Jesus assumes full responsibility for us. He bears our sins. He doesn't try to pass the responsibility The anguish that he goes through at the Garden of Gethsemane, right? The, the, the knowledge of what's to come the dialogue that he has with his father about what's to take place. It's in that moment that he is bearing the responsibility of us as God's people on his shoulders, on his heart, and takes it to the cross where the curtain can be pulled back, where we can be given free access to God because our sins are forever dealt with. The priest was meant to support God's people in this way. Jesus shows up and does it far better. Number two, find safety from a better priest find safety from a better priest. You can continue to read through chapter 28 to see more in detail what the clothing would look like. But it's at the end of Exodus chapter 28, in verse 31, that we get a little bit more insight into the fear factor that comes with putting this clothing on and, and carrying out the duties. It says, "'You shall make the robe of the ephod of blue.'" It shall have an opening for the head in the middle of it with a woven binding around the opening like the opening in a garment so that it may not tear. On its hem you shall make pomegranates of blue and purple and scarlet yarns around its hem with bells of gold between them. A golden bell and a pomegranate, a golden bell and a pomegranate around the hem of the robe. And it shall be on Aaron when he ministers and its sound shall be heard when he goes into the holy place before the Lord and when he comes out so that he does not die. What's happening here? This priesthood, Aaron and his descendants, it's required to wear bells to ensure they're not killed in God's presence. How does this work? Well, the bells symbolically alert God that one who is coming is coming in obedience, right? This isn't somebody trying to sneak into the presence of God. This isn't somebody trying to skirt the system to get access to God. As those bells would be ringing, as the priest would come into the presence of God, it symbolically shows everybody this is the only way to him. There is no other way at this point. Like you have to come in this manner. So the bells are ringing. It's alerting God symbolically that the person who's coming is coming in the right manner. As Aaron would carry out his duties and Aaron's sons and descendants beyond, as they would carry out those duties, those bells would be ringing to let people on the outside know, I'm still alive, I'm still alive. God is still accepting this process. He's still accepting you as the people of God in his presence by me being here. Jesus shows up, he does it better. He approaches God's presence with full assurance because he's already died and now he lives. Right? As we hear and read about God uh, accepting Jesus into His presence, post-resurrection, it's a picture of there is no fear about death because we already know the sacrifice has been accepted because Jesus has already died, and he lives again, Hebrews chapter nine. Hebrews chapter nine, starting in verse um, 11. But when Christ appeared as a high priest of the good things that have come, then through the greater and more perfect tent, not made with hands, that is not of this creation, he entered once for all into the holy places. Notice it's not Jesus going into the tabernacle holy places right? Jesus doesn't get off the cross. He doesn't come back alive and then walk down to the tabernacle or to the temple in Jerusalem and say, hey, I need to go in and, and tear that and I need to have access to God's presence. No, he's not going into the presence of God made by hands that are simply representations of what's in heaven. No, he entered once and for all into the holy places in heaven, not by means of the blood of goats and calves, but by means of his own blood, thus securing an eternal redemption. For if the blood of goats and bulls and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh, how much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal Spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works to serve the living God? Verse 24 of the same chapter For Christ has entered not into the holy places made with hands, which are copies of the true things, but into heaven itself. And just as it is appointed for man to die once, and after that comes judgment, so Christ, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time, not to deal with sin, but to save those who are eagerly waiting for him. He gives us a safety that's far better than what the priesthood could give us, right? Every time the priest would go in and those bells are ringing, you're hopeful that he comes out alive. You're hopeful that God accepts because if God accepts the priest, he's accepting you because that's your representation. Christ is far better in his representation, right? Like we're, we're, not, we're not left to wonder. The sacrifice has been accepted. The, the presence of God has been open to his people. All the questioning and wondering is not, is not now us keeping our fingers crossed with hope. It's a true hope that he's coming back to give us into the presence of God forever one day. Full assurance. Full safety because Jesus is the better priest. Number three, we find sanctification and sympathy from a better priest. Exodus chapter 29. Exodus 28 is all about the clothing, it's all about that process of getting them ordained uh, in, a, in a manner where they're presentable to God in a, in a holy format where God can look upon them and say, You're okay to be here right? You've taken the obedient steps to clothe yourself the best you can in anticipation of a far greater righteousness to come. Exodus 29, we begin to see the, uh, the consecration process that the priest must go through. Exodus chapter 29, um, let's read in verse 12. We'll start in verse 10. Then you shall bring the bull before the tent of meeting, Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the bull. Then you shall kill the bull before the Lord at the entrance of the tent of meeting and and shall take part of the blood of the bull and put it on the horns of the altar with your finger and the rest of the blood you shall pour out on the base of the altar. And you shall take all the fat that covers the entrails and the long lobe of the liver and the two kidneys with the fat that is on them and burn them on the altar. But the flesh of the bull and its skin and its dung you shall burn with fire outside the camp. It is a sin offering. Verse 15, "...then you shall take one of the rams, and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram, and you shall kill the ram, and shall take its blood, and throw it against the sides of the altar. Then you shall cut the ram into pieces, and wash its entrails and its legs, and put them in its pieces and its head, and burn the whole ram on the altar. It is a burnt offering to the Lord. It is a pleasing aroma, a food offering to the Lord." You shall take the other ram and Aaron and his sons shall lay their hands on the head of the ram and you shall kill the ram and take part of its blood and put it on, top, on the tip of the right ear of Aaron and on the tips of the right ears of his sons and on the thumbs of their right hands and on the great toes of their right feet and throw the rest of the blood against the sides of the altar. Then you shall take part of the blood that is on the altar and of the anointing oil and sprinkle it on, sprinkle it on Aaron and his garments and on his sons and his sons garments with them. He and his garments shall be holy and his sons and his sons' garments with him." what's happening here? They're being consecrated. They're being set apart, right? It's not just that they can put the clothing on. They also have to have their sin dealt with. And so symbolically, these animals are brought, right? And they're passing their sins to these animals. And now these animals are going to be treated as though they bear the sins of these people, right? We've ordained elders here in the past. Thankfully, we don't have to do it this way, right? We don't have to do it this way. We don't have to bring elders before us and have them pass their sins onto animals and then clothe them in a certain way so that they can serve you. No, they've already been clothed with the righteousness of Christ, right? Their sins have already been dealt with through the sacrifice on the cross. We don't have to go through this in an ordination process. Aaron and his sons did have to. They were required to be set apart through washings and anointings and sacrifices in order to meet with God. It wasn't just the sacrifice part. It wasn't just the, um, the putting on of the, of the clothing. They also had to go through a washing that we didn't read about earlier in the chapter. They had to go through a head-to-toe washing and cleansing, then put the clothing on, and then sacrifice the animals. It's meant to represent the righteousness that they don't have. Right? Even though they're not righteous, they're meant to try to depict as best they can righteousness. Psalm chapter 132, verse 9. Psalm 132, verse 9 says this Let your priests be clothed with righteousness, and let your saints shout for joy. The verse before that arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. It's tabernacle language, right? The psalmist is crying out to God to be in that place, to be in the place of the Ark of the Covenant and to allow the representation the priest to be clothed with righteousness so he can do his duty, so that he can represent the people. It's an ideal type of a picture even though these priests aren't going to meet the ideal. Thankfully, Romans 3 truth is understood here that he's overlooking the sins in anticipation of Christ's coming. Number two, The priesthood was required to offer sacrifices and prayers regularly for the people in the presence of God. Back in Exodus 29, once they were set up to be the priest, once they've gone through all of this ceremonial clothing and washing and sacrificing, then they're to carry out their duties. And in verse 38 of 29, we see what some of those duties look like. Now this is what you shall offer on the altar, two lambs a year old day by day regularly. One lamb you shall offer in the morning and the other lamb you shall offer at twilight. And with the first lamb, a 10th measure of fine flour mingled with a fourth of a hen of beaten oil and a fourth of a hen of wine for a drink offering. The other lamb you shall offer at twilight and shall offer with it a grain offering and its drink offering as in the morning for a pleasing aroma a food offering to the Lord. It shall be a regular burnt offering throughout your generations at the entrance of the tent of meeting before the Lord, where I will meet with you to speak to you there. There I will meet with the people of Israel and it shall be sanctified by my glory. I will consecrate the tent of meeting and the altar. Aaron also and his sons I will consecrate to serve me as priests. They're going to have to sacrifice every day, morning and evening, right? What does that communicate? It communicates the seriousness of the sins of us, the people of God right? Even though he's saved them from Egypt, even though they've been set free from their exile, even though they've been brought to the mountain of God and given the commands of God, they're going to fail and they're going to have to stand before a holy God for it. And so he's making provisions so they can. And so the priests are going to offer sacrifices morning and night as representation of the people for their forgiveness. Over and over and over again, these sacrifices are going to be offered. In addition to these sacrifices in Exodus chapter thirty, verse seven, we see that they're to offer incense regularly as well. We, are, we talked last week about how they're to keep the lamp burning in the tabernacle, right? In addition to the lamp burning, they're to keep the incense altar going as well. It says in verse seven, an Aaron shall burn fragrant incense on it every morning when he dresses the lamps, he shall burn it. And when Aaron sets up the lamps at twilight, he shall burn it, a regular incense offering before the Lord throughout your generations. You shall not offer unauthorized incense on it, or a burnt offering, or a grain offering, and you shall not pour a drink offering on it. Aaron shall make atonement on its horns once a year. With the blood of the sin offering of atonement, he shall make atonement for it once in the year throughout your generations. It is most holy to the Lord sacrifices and prayers being offered in the presence of God. Sacrifices every morning, every night serve as a reminder of the ongoing need for atonement and forgiveness. Now we have this altar of incense and this it's placed at the veil of the Holy of Holies. We saw it on our diagram last week. So it's right outside the Holy of Holies, this altar of incense and the smoke coming from it would have probably brought back remembrance of being at the foot of the mountain of God, where we talked about the smoke and the clouds that surrounded the mountain, right? They're getting that impression in the holy place. But the incense, I think, represents the prayers of God's people. Psalm chapter 141. Lots of places in scripture we see incense attributed to the prayers of God's people. Psalm chapter 141, verse 2. David says, let my prayer be counted as incense before you and the lifting up of my hands as the evening sacrifice. Luke chapter one, in Luke chapter one, verse eight, this is the priest Zachariah working in the temple. It says, now while he was serving as priest before God, when his division was on duty, according to the custom of the priesthood, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. I don't know if you wanted to be chosen by Lot or you didn't. Like, I don't know if that was a scary thing or if you were like, yes, it's me today. Or if it's like, oh, it's me today, right? Get the bells going because hopefully I'm coming out, right? Like this This was probably one where you were like, I don't want to draw the short straw again. He gets it. He's going in, right? He's going to, to keep the incense burning. And the whole multitude of the people were praying outside at the hour of incense. You can see how the incense and the prayers seem to be closely tied together. You fast forward into Revelation chapter 5 and Revelation chapter 8, we see the prayers of the saints depicted as incense before God. It's this sweet-smelling aroma, right, which which ought to give us comfort and assurance as to why we pray, not just for favors, but we come praying, acknowledging who God is, giving him the, the worthy worship that he deserves, and in the midst of that, appealing to him for the needs that we have, right? And it's a sweet smelling aroma. And it was so sweet and so good that God even says, hey, don't take the recipe and try to sell it as cologne for yourselves. He's like, that's a big no-no too, because this is set apart and holy for me and for me only. And he's like, it's gonna smell good and it's gonna be great. And it's gonna fill the, 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 the tabernacle and the temple with this great aroma. And it's the prayers that you're offering on behalf of the people. And this was their duty. This was their role as the priest to do this, to to represent the people of God, to sacrifice for them and to pray for them. The prayers serve as a reminder of their ongoing need for guidance, direction, and provision. The great thing for us is that Jesus shows up and he does it better. He provides a better washing, a better sacrifice, and he lives to make intercessions from a standpoint of understanding us. He's a better priest in this manner. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14 talks about how he understands us. He gets us. He's not a disconnected, out-of-tune priest. He understands who we are and what we need. Hebrews chapter 4, verse 14. Since then we have a great high priest who has passed through the heavens, Jesus, the Son of God. Let us hold fast our confession, for we do not have a high priest who is unable to sympathize with our weaknesses, but one who in every respect has been tempted as we are, yet without sin. Let us then with confidence draw near to the throne of grace, that we may receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. He understands us. He gets us. Hebrews chapter 7, verse 23. He doesn't have to go through this ceremonial stuff that the uh, Aaronic priesthood had to. It says, "...the former priests were many in number because they were prevented by death from continuing in office." but he holds his priesthood permanently because he continues forever. Consequently, he is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. That's what he lives for. He's making intercession for us. For it was indeed fitting that we should have such a high priest, holy, innocent, unstained, separated from sinners, exalted above the heavens, Look at this, verse 27. He has no need like those high priests to offer sacrifices daily, first for his own sins and then for those of the people, since he did this once for all when he offered up himself. For the law appoints men in their weakness as high priests, but the word of the oath, which came later than the law, appoints a son who has been made perfect forever. He doesn't have to pass his sins off. He's perfect. He's already holy. He doesn't have to offer sacrifices for us. He did it once and for all. He's a better priest. 1 Corinthians 6, 11 talks about the better washing that he gives to us now. We're not washed with water. We don't need our baptismal pool to be great. He says, and such were some of you after listing all these sins off in 1 Corinthians 6, but you were washed, you were sanctified, you were justified in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ and by the Spirit of our God. We're washed in his blood. Washing, renewal, regeneration, Titus 3, 5 talks about it. 1 John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us. He washes us clean as a better priest. What assurance we have that this mediator, this advocate is the one who's interceding for us. He lives to intercede for us. He does it intentionally. He does it perfectly. Romans chapter 8, verse 31. What then shall we say to these things? If God is for us, who can be against us? He who did not spare his own son, but gave him up for us, all. How will he not also with him graciously give us all things? Who shall bring any charge against God's elect? It is God who justifies. Who is to condemn? Christ Jesus is the one who died, more than that, who was raised, who is at the right hand of God, who indeed is interceding for us. What a comfort to know that our high priest bears our name on his shoulders and his heart, and he's not just in a man made tabernacle, holy of holies, trying to advocate for us. He's at the right hand of the of the heavenly Father, advocating for us, praying for us, interceding for us. Now I was praying. I was praying um, this week, uh, driving home from work, that, that God would provide a house for my family. Right, my rent keeps going up, higher and higher, and I'm like, Lord, I need a massive favor right now. I need a house. And then I was just overcome with assurance of like, and Jesus has already been praying for that right? Like like I've been working hard today and I can't pray every second of the day, but Jesus is. Like Jesus is interceding for me on my behalf and my family's behalf in the throne room because he's a better priest. He's better than any human priest that Israel ever knew, right? He's interceding for me at the same time he's interceding for you, right? And he knows what we need better than we even do. So I'm groaning, right? And praying and the Holy Spirit's groaning in a far better way, He's praying for exactly what I need. What assurance it gives us. He provides a better righteousness that we're clothed in now ourselves too. 2 Corinthians 5, 21. A better priest with better support, better safety, better sanctification, better sympathy. What's the important lessons that we take away from this quick, big overview of the priesthood? We have flown through uh, the better part of four chapters today. Two important lessons that we can't miss this morning. One, the ironic priesthood will ultimately prove to be insufficient it's an insufficient priesthood so i encourage you to go back read through 28 29 30 and 31 and the lesson you learn is this is insufficient it doesn't it doesn't do what it needs to do perfectly god's grace rather than man's worthiness allows this band-aid to work for a time but think about what's going to happen in Exodus chapter 32 and I think the, the placement of all this is important because all you're reading about in 28, 29, 30, and 31 is focused on Aaron and his boys and what they're supposed to do. And then you get to Exodus 32. And what's, what's, what's Aaron do? He caves to the people, right? They're concerned about where Moses is and they want a God to worship and he's gonna construct that golden calf. He's gonna give in. He fails. And then when Moses comes off the mountain and he's like, what's going on? What are you doing? What does Aaron do? Does he bear the people on his shoulders and his heart? Does he take responsibility for them? Does he say, hey, I'm here to advocate for them? No, he says, you won't believe these people. Like if you want to blame somebody, you blame those people because they are wicked and sinful and they don't want to listen to anything. And he passes the responsibility. And praise be to God, it wasn't Aaron in the Garden of Gethsemane, right? Because he would have passed the cup and said, I'm not drinking from it. I don't want to bear responsibility for these people. Like if you're an Israelite, you got to be thinking like, man, this is our hope. Like tabernacle, that sounds awesome. That dude's going to be the dude that goes in and bears responsibility for us. He just passed the responsibility. And this priesthood is meant to create a longing for something better. And you don't understand how much better it is in the New Testament if you don't understand what they would have been dealing with in the old. Man, Aaron's the best we got. He's, he's who's gonna represent us. Man, we need somebody better than that. That's where number two comes in. Points us to the sufficiency of Jesus. And Aaron's gonna fail. He's gonna lead. He's gonna fail to lead well. He fails to assume responsibility. He passes blame. Man, his boys don't do much better, right? You read about him in Leviticus 10. They're offering bad incense on the altar. They were told not to do that, and they're killed for it. Jesus is better. He is the tabernacle. He is the priest. He is the sacrifice. And everything has always been pointing to him. Like, Don't think for a second that Jesus comes on the scene because it didn't work. No. Passages like 1 Peter 1, 19 and 20, Revelation 13, 8, they say that the lamb was slain before the foundation of the world. It was always about Jesus being the hero. And systems like the tabernacle and the priesthood and the sacrifices were set up so we would want the hero, right? He didn't come in to fix it because we messed it up. We were always gonna mess it up and we were meant to show how much we need the hero. And that's what Jesus does. He shows up and says, I'll be your Aaron for you, right? Because Aaron did really bad at it. He put the clothing on him and we tried to cover him up and clean him up and man, he did the best he could, but man, it fell short as we all do. We all fall short of the glory of God. Jesus doesn't. Jesus shows up and he wins what we need, the righteousness that we can be clothed in. The application for us, God's will is for you to come to full awareness and acknowledgement of who he is and what he has done and to live your life in response to it. Exodus chapter 29, and we'll close. Exodus chapter 29, at the end of the chapter, God says, this is why we're doing all of this. I will dwell among the people of Israel and will be their God, and they shall know that I am the Lord their God who brought them out of the land of Egypt that I might dwell among them. I am the Lord their God. That's his will for us, for us to know him, for us to be aware, to acknowledge and to live in light of that awareness and acknowledgement, to live for him, to live in obedience. Whether we're we're considered a holy minister or an average ordinary individual in the church, we are to work for the glory of God with the skill sets that he has given to us. That's what he talks about. Like we have been built up as this priesthood, all of us, being built up into this priesthood that makes up the church where we've been empowered by the Holy Spirit to carry out our skills for his glory and for his honor. And we're to be set apart in that. We didn't touch on it today uh, because we've already hit on it some, but if you read at the end of Exodus chapter 31, there's a whole nother section about the Sabbath and the ways they treat their week are meant to be different than everybody else. One of the ways that we show a difference is we gather in this format on a Sunday morning when we could be doing all kinds of other things. We say, you know what? Like Worshiping him is important. Worshiping him with God's people is important. We're set apart. We're different. Our week ought to look different coming up as well. Holy Spirit lives inside of us. We're priests of God. We're, We're the tabernacle now for people to experience the presence of God because Christ has made that possible in our life. Let us live in such a way where we live out that awareness and that acknowledgement this week, particularly as we, we enter into a Thanksgiving season where we're gonna cross paths with unbelieving family members. Let us be a great representation of the presence of God when they come into the presence of us. Let's pray together. God, we love you, we praise you, and we thank you that you sent Jesus to be our priest. You communicated a desire for us to come home to be with you. And then you sent a mediator to get us there. We didn't have to come with our own good works and our own efforts and our own righteousness because we would have never made it home if we did. You sent your son Jesus to be perfect for us, to clothe us in righteousness after washing us clean, white as snow with the blood of the lamb. Lord, we're thankful that we can sit here today under a better covenant, a more fulfilled covenant. For the shadows and the pictures and the images have been replaced with the trueness of Jesus, who's our tabernacle, our priest, our sacrifice. We give you glory and honor this morning for your son, Jesus. Lord, help us to live in the acknowledgement and the awareness that he has come, that you are our God. Lord, in anticipation of next week, help us to attack and fight the idols that we so oftentimes set up in our life that would take placement over you. Lord, point our hearts and our minds and our thoughts to Jesus. Help us live for Him. In your name we pray. Amen. Thank you for listening to the Sovereign Hope Church Podcast. We trust that you've been encouraged by the Word. For more information about our church, please visit our website at www.savhope.org. Again, that's www.savhope.org.